0: Well, we are in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and this week we come to the last two sections of the Sermon on the Plains and what are two, again, famous teachings of Jesus. And what we have with the Sermon on the Plains, and this is true with the Sermon on the Mount too, uh, is a summary of what Jesus preached. I mean, he would have preached for hours at a time, even as we can obviously read this sermon in a matter of minutes. And it was as we've talked about, primarily addressed to his apostles, but also to other committed disciples as well. But there was also the curious and onlookers, maybe bystanders, as well as his opponents and enemies who were listening to him preach as well. Also keep in mind that to really rightly understand this sermon. We, you have to see it as a complete literary unit. This is why I keep going back to things that were said previous to it. There's a certain sense in which every sermon, if we're breaking these things down, is a little bit artificial because we're taking it phrase by phrase almost, but it's intended to be read really as one kind of continuous thought that builds on each other. It's why I'm gonna be in real danger of mixing metaphors today because uh, uh, Jesus uses a lot of metaphors. but. Luke wants us to read it not only as a unit, but in light of his whole gospel. He assumes everything that has come before, and really in many ways he assumes what's coming later too. And he assumes you will have read the gospel multiple times. And in turn, he assumes that you will take this gospel and put it in conversation with all of Scripture, which is what I'm trying to do as well. Well, with that said, let's pick it up with chapter 6, verse 43. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to Him in prayer. Lord, as we often confess, and as we will see today in this passage, as well as others the righteous are not righteous on their own, they are righteous because they are in union with you through Christ. It is like a vine in its branches and so we ask that we would be that very thing together as your people, that as we read here we would have eyes to see and ears to hear your voice and in turn feet that would follow you and do what you teach. And even further in that, that we would have eyes that make right and good judgments, not by our own hearts, but by yours. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 43, Jesus built off the same idea uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount the Sermon on the Plains are very similar, even as there are uh, different accents there. He builds off the same idea in the Sermon on the Mount of where your treasure is, your heart will be also, and that teaching is at the center of his teaching on the eye that we talked about last week. Can a blind man lead a blind man, he writes or says, will they not both fall into a pit? Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not see the log that is in your own eye? So if you... Uh, Take that and put it in conversation with the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says the eye is the lamp of the body. You can understand that what's at issue is the ability to make right evaluations and judgments in light of God and His Word, which is what God created humans to do. I mean, that's partly what it is to have dominion. So if a person's heart is not set on God, then his heart is bad and will, in turn, make bad judgments. Again, he will not see the world rightly and his eye, in turn, will be dark. It's akin to what students find out uh, in math and logic. If your fundamental assumptions are wrong, uh, say you are off by one digit early in the math problem. Everything that follows might have stellar logic, but in the end, your answer will be wrong. Doesn't, close does not count. It's like basketball, right? It's either this or it's not. So to put it another way, if a compass doesn't point to true north, it doesn't assume true north, it doesn't matter how closely you follow the map, you will not end up in the right place because your fundamental assumptions are bad. So if the eye is bad, you will not be able to see rightly to make good judgments. But as we saw last week, Jesus makes it clear that that, uh, spiritual blindness is such that those who are blind don't know that they're blind. That is, they think their compass Works, or they think they've got all their digits right. And so in their spiritual blindness, remember, they have a log in their eye, and they don't even realize they have a log in their eye. They self-confidently lead other blind people into a pit alongside them. And as we discussed last week, by speaking in terms of leading, Jesus is alluding to the Pharisees and scribes. Eventually, He'll just call them straight out. But at this point, he's he's just alluding to them and how they had taken on the mantle as the shepherds and guides of Israel. But by rejecting Jesus, they were leading, leading Israel into the pit alongside themselves. This is perhaps most poignant in the Gospels when the leaders of Israel convinced the crowds that Jesus is a rebellious son, worthy of death, and in turn convinced the crowds to choose Barabbas, Bar-Abbas, the false son of the father over Jesus who is the true son. And they say, we have no king but Caesar. They say, his blood be on us and our children. I mean, think on this. No prophet in the Old Testament did the sorts of things that Jesus did, certainly not to the extent that he did, And yet after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, this is unbelievable to me, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and they went to see him, their judgment was that they needed to kill both Jesus and Lazarus. That's what it looks like to have an eye that is darkened. Jesus in our passage today is making the same points about spiritual blindness, but with different imagery. Good trees produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. So just as fruit is the result, think through the imagery here, just as fruit is the result of the internal health of the tree, so too with a person. A person's words and actions are all products of his unseen thoughts, desires and emotions. But give it enough time, who we are and what we treasure is revealed to the world. And sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes it takes a long time to distinguish between a good tree and a bad one, because on the outside they basically look the same. Even so, despite the array of masks we tend to wear, and in our sin, we all wear a version of a mask or another. Give it enough timeline, we can't help but eventually reveal who we are. Well, that's Jesus' point in verse 45. He says, For out of the abundance of the heart His mouth speaks. Abundance of what? Well, the abundance of His treasure. Whatever our heart loves most, whatever our treasure is, out of the abundance of that do we live and move and speak. And Jesus continues in verse 44, For each tree is known by its own fruit, For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. And this isn't merely an agricultural illustration, though it clearly is one. It's actually judgment language. So Israel was often pictured in the Old Testament as a fig tree, or as God's vineyard, or as a garden that He planted. And this is what stands behind Jesus' cursing of the fig tree in Matthew 21. That fig tree was a symbol of Israel, and because Israel's heart was bad, because her eye was darkened, she produced bad, or really, in that case, no fruit and would be judged for it. Or it's like his parable from Matthew 20 about a man who owned a vineyard complete with a wine press that was put under the stewardship of, of the man's servants who wound up mismanaging it and tried to steal the fruit for themselves. That vineyard was Israel and the wicked servants were the leadership of Israel. And the wine press part is important. It's important because wine is often correlated with kingship but also to maturity. It takes a lot of time to cultivate a good grape and in turn to produce good wine. So instead of being fig trees or vineyards that produce mature wine, Israel had become like thorns or chaff images connected to the cursing of the ground in Genesis 3. It's very much like, like Psalm 1, and for good reason, Psalm 1 is really the first psalm, really the head of the psalms. It sets the theme. It says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. All that language matters. But his delight nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So as Jesus has already said in his sermon, right from the beginning, his disciples are those who who know his voice and follow him. It's very much akin to what uh, the psalmist is talking about. They meditate on the word of the Lord, on the law of the Lord day and night, and they delight in it. The Lord knows the way of His people because His people listen to His voice and in turn walk in His way. And in Psalm 1, the wicked are the ones who listen to voices other than God's voice. They set their hearts on the wrong things and in turn make bad judgments. They walk in the counsel, again that's a voice, of the wicked. They stand in the way of sinners. They sit in the seat of scoffers. So the pattern is this. One, they listen to the wrong voice and rejection of God's Word. And it's not a mistake, it's intentional. Two, they walk in the wrong way. And remember, Jesus in this sermon is contrasting two ways throughout His sermon. And then three, in turn, they sit in judgment over others taking the seat of scoffers. So the pattern, this is true for both the righteous and the wicked, is listening to a voice Walking in the way of that voice and making judgments by that voice. This is what every single human does. And we can't help but do it because we're image bearers. So in contrast, the righteous is like a tree planted by streams of water. And this, of course, is a tree of life image. And it gets at the idea of being planted in good soil and being connected, being fed by the living water of God. Or as Jesus puts it, I am the vine And you are the branches. There's no independence there. The branches find their life in the vine. Because this tree is planted uh, in good soil and fed by the living water, it produces fruit in its season according to God's created pattern. Seasonally connected to Genesis 1, according to His Word, or really according to all of His Word. He meditates. His delight is in the law of the Lord. The tree's leaf does not wither, which means its life endures, perhaps more so like the image of the tree of life in Revelation 22, which produces 12 crops of fruit, every tribe of Israel produces, every month it does this, whose leaves were for the healing of the nations. This good tree both loves God and loves His neighbor and is a gift for the life of the world. So as a spiritually mature human in union with God, as the psalmist says, he prospers. Now, prosperity, of course, it does have a notion to financial prosperity. That's how we tend to read it as Americans, but more so is the joy of walking with God, being a friend of God, which is what we see with people like Enoch or Abraham, but especially with Jesus. And the ultimate picture of that righteous tree in Psalm 1, of course, is Jesus himself. He is the vine, giving life to the branches. But this is what he is actually cultivating in us. Psalm 1 is what God wants for his people. And Psalm 1 ends by returning to the wicked. And it tells us the wicked are not like good trees. They've listened to the wrong voices. They've walked in the wrong ways. They've made bad judgments, so they cannot stand. They are like chaff that the wind, really the judgment of God, drives away. So the result is that they have no place in the congregation of the righteous. That is, they have no place in the people of God. And like you see with the flood and with Noah, you want to be the ones who remain in the land. And what makes this psalm so striking? and this is why I think it stands at the head of the Psalms, is that it's not so much describing the way of the people of God versus pagans, though you can make that connection. That's that's a right implication, I think. But really, two different kinds of people within the people of God itself. So though they may look the same and speak the same and maybe even worship together in the same synagogue, they have hearts set on two different things. This is why throughout the Sermon on the Plains, Jesus has been juxtaposing two ways, not three or four, two. Two ways for the Jewish people with he himself being the dividing line running right through the middle of them. The very thing that, that Simeon, if you remember from early in Luke, Simeon prophesied 30 years earlier that he would run right through the middle of Israel and divide it. Now, in verse 46, Jesus says, Why do you call me... Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you to do. So everyone who comes to me and and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. Now, before we get to that, what that person is like, it's worth asking, who is he referring to here? Who are the people saying, Lord, Lord? Well, the other place where he refers to people saying, Lord, Lord, is in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. And there he's warning against false prophets and he uses the same language of figs and thorns as he does here in verses 43 through 45 of our passage. And he's, he's warning against the scribes and Pharisees who, in their rejection of Jesus, will be no better than the false prophets of Jeremiah's day who said, peace, peace, when there was no peace, and rejected Jer- Jeremiah's message of judgment on Jerusalem and God's offer of life in Babylon. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That phrase, on that day, is almost always technical language for the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord, of course, has its its fulfillment ultimately at the last judgment, but it happens many times throughout history. So, for example, the flood was a kind of day of the Lord, even though that, that phrase wasn't quite there, as was the fire on Sodom, as was the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in Jeremiah's day, as it would also be with the second destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So the picture is of people who look religious, they're two trees. And by religious, I mean they acted like pious Jews. And think of Paul before he was converted. Nobody here was as zealous as Paul, nobody. And in turn, they did good things for their community, including the teaching of Scripture, precisely like the Pharisees did. But in their rejection of Jesus, Though by all appearances they are orthodox, they have become false teachers and false prophets leading the people astray as blind guides because they rejected the voice of God through His Son, the Word, just as the wicked of Psalm 1 did. For good reason at His baptism and transfiguration, they said, "This is my God the Father says, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. And what will be shocking is to them, the the leadership of Israel here, is that the very one they rejected as a rebellious son of Israel will be the one who judges them. In turn, they will point to their resume of good things, maybe even their orthodoxy, much like Paul could do in Philippians 3. But it's not so-called good works that saves a person. It's just not. It's life in the Son that produces actual fruit. So if you know the Son, then he will produce good fruit in you. He is the vine, you are the branches. And by way of knowing him, a person will be judged to be a good tree. Apart from the sun, a person will be judged by the fruit they produce all on their own. And because they do not have the sun in their spiritual blindness, they do not produce good fruit, though they think they do. So it's who you know that really matters. And the scribes and Pharisees do not know God, though they think they do. Well, Jesus in verse 48 again describes his disciples as the ones who hear his words and do them. Here's what he says. A disciple is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So again, this, this illustration, like the ones that have come before, is a contrast in foundation. So the one who, who listens to Christ, like Simon, who was nicknamed Peter, which means rock, who got that nickname from Jesus himself for confessing Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that person has built his house on the rock and in turn he has a firm foundation. Notice even the imagery. He had to dig deep for it to find that rock. When the flood of judgment comes, because they have listened to God's voice and have done what he says, like Noah in his day, they are not shaken. They are not washed away because their rock their ark is Christ. The sheep know the shepherd, and the shepherd knows them. Now, the one who refuses to listen to Christ is like a man whose house is built without a foundation, whose house is built in sand, so to speak, just the topsoil. When the flood comes, that house that house is utterly destroyed. And the image of the house is not merely... Indicative of a person who loses his possession and yet survives. The house is the man himself. That's why the ruin of the house is so great. Think of it this way. Jesus is the new and better temple. And what the old tabernacle and temple looked forward to was, in fact, the person of Jesus. And we, in turn, as he tells us, are his body The temple of the Holy Spirit together. So, in Him, because we are His body, our house is secure. He is our rock, the cleft in which we find our shelter. And again, just take all these metaphors I'm piling on. But without Him, a person is a house unto themselves. And because they have no foundation, they cannot stand. They cannot withstand the flood of of judgment. So again, there are only two ways of being, only two. Those who listen to Jesus walk in his ways and mature into good judgments as Adam was intended to do, and those who do not listen to his voice and in turn walk in evil ways, no matter how they may read it, and they make bad judgments and are judged by God for it. So in the most simplest terms, You know, as as grandmothers sometimes say, it's either his way or the highway. And that's right. And by the way, every human will be judged by God. Let's sit on that for a minute. Every human will be judged by God. And the difference with those who belong to Christ is that Christ himself is the judge and our advocate and our redeemer. So like Psalm 1, a person is either a tree planted in good ground and nourished by living waters, producing fruit in its season, or is a person who disregards God's voice and becomes like chaff that is blown away in the judgment. So like we've been studying in our evening series uh, with Genesis 4-11, through either God will give you a name and give you life in Him or in your rejection of Him, like Cain, Lamech, Ham, Nimrod, Jocton, you will build a name for yourself. And you and your works will be your foundation. And because that is your foundation, you will be scattered like chaff. And again, the difference between the two ways as Jesus presents it here is not between Christians and pagans, though clearly we can make that inference. It's between people who on the surface look like similar trees. So as you go through what jesus teaches here it's easy to misread him as saying the one who builds a good foundation is like the little pig who built his house out of brick that person will be well prepared against the wolf who huffs and puffs and tries to blow his house down but think on it who in that fairy tale actually saves the pig well the pig himself It's through his ingenuity and his hard work uh, that he saved, as opposed to his lazy brothers that built their houses out of straw and sticks. That's why he can withstand the attacks of the wolf. And while that sort of thing may be somewhat true in sports, never you mind genetics and being lucky, or in the building of a business or what have you, it is not true when it comes to God. That fairy tale resonates with us because it appeals really to our sinful reading of the world. And if you work hard and plan for the future, which can be incredibly helpful, then it doesn't matter who shows up at your door. That's what the world thinks. It's by the hair of your chinny-chin-chin that you will be saved. And that's exactly how Nimrod, the builder of Babylon, saw it too. If Jesus were to retell the three little pigs All three pigs are foolish and are engaged in futile attempts at saving themselves, even as one of the pigs comes across as more righteous and more put together than the others. And perhaps it's that last little pig that is the most easily fooled, because initially he does save himself. However, in reality... The wolf would eventually win, and in the real world, unlike the fairy tale, pigs don't eat wolves. Wolves eat pigs. So the difference between good trees and bad trees is not a result of who can produce good fruit all on their own. No such person exists. And so it's not the difference between the pigs who use straw and sticks and those who use bricks. No, that's the wisdom of the world. Apart from God, all of life is a contest of self-justification that usually results in someone sitting in the judgment seat of scoffers, like the last little pig. In contrast, the righteous man who produces good fruit, like Jesus himself demonstrates, is in full dependence on God the Father. He's planted and fed by God, he listens to God and does what God says, and in turn, God, through this person, produces fruit. It's like what Paul says in Galatians 2:20, "I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me." Do you see that, that imagery? And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me." So as Grant McCaskill comments, and we talked about this a lot this past fall. It is not a principle or an ideology of my desires that defines me. It's a person. That's how the world does it, ideology and desires. That's who you are. No, 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 it's a person. And so it's no longer Paul, but Paul in Christ. Paul in himself is a thing of the past, because that's a thing of the world. That's Babylon. That Paul is gone. He no longer exists. He is now and only Paul in Christ. So if we take Paul seriously, then there is no you without God. Just like there is no good tree without good soil and a water source to give it life. So then, I should think of myself as Rob in Christ, not merely rob. I know that gets weird filling out tax forms, but that's how we should think of ourselves. Christians are not, I, we have to get this in our head, we are not independent moral agents. No, that's the way of death. No, Christians are trees planted in good soil, fed by the living waters, who produce good fruit through the work of the Spirit. So the issue is not so much good works, though there's something to that. It's who you know. And when the scribes and Pharisees rejected Jesus, they rejected God Himself. And it doesn't matter what sort of good things they did after that. It's like a man who who divorced his wife and then claimed to be faithful to her, even going so far as living in the same house and attempting to go through all the motions of being a good and faithful husband. Don't ask that guy how his marriage is. He's a blind idiot posturing for his community. Ask the ex-wife. She'll tell you the truth. You see, to be a Christian is to be a person united to Christ who lives in dependence on Him. It's to be given. It's to be given an identity in Him. And the good fruit we produce does not come from us. It comes from Christ Himself who loves us and is at work within us through His Spirit. So let the one who has ears to hear hear. Let me pray for this. Heavenly Father, the temptation always is to think we are independent, that we do produce these things all on our own. But, Lord, it is all gift. Every last aspect of our being is gift. From the very breath we are intaking now to our thoughts, to our ability to even reason through what your word has taught. Lord, it all comes from you as gift. May you continue to work in our hearts and our minds and our feet that we would grow into maturity and be the kind of living trees that you've always intended for us to be. I pray this in our Savior and our Messiah's name, Jesus. Amen.